Enoch's Grand Vision, The Weeping of Enoch, Moses 7, 28-43, Book of Moses Insight, number 28. The tradition of a weeping prophet is perhaps best exemplified by Jeremiah, who cried out in sorrow, Oh, that my head were waters, and mine eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. In another place he wrote, Let mine eyes run down with tears night and day, and let them not cease, for the virgin daughter of my people is broken with a great breach, with a very grievous blow. Less well known is the ancient Enoch Jewish tradition of Enoch as a weeping prophet. In the pseudepigraphal book of First Enoch, his words are very near to those of Jeremiah. Quote, oh, that my eyes were a fountain of water, that I might weep over you. I would pour out my tears as a cloud of water, and I would rest from the grief of my heart. End of quote. We find in the pseudepigraphal of Enoch, like Enoch in the book of Moses, weeping in response to visions of mankind's wickedness. Following the second of these visions in first Enoch, he's recorded as saying, quote, And after that I wept bitterly, and my tears did not cease until I could no longer endure it, for they were running down because of what I had seen. I wept because of it, and I was disturbed because I had seen the vision, end of quote. In the Apocalypse of Paul, the apostle meets Enoch, the scribe of righteousness, within the gate of paradise, and after having been cheerfully embraced and kissed, sees the prophet weep and says, says to him, quote, Brother, why do you weep? And again sighing and lamenting, he said, We are hurt by men, and they grieve us greatly, for many are the good things which the Lord has prepared, and great is his promise, but many do not perceive them. End of quote. A similar motif of Enoch weeping over the generations of mankind can be found in the pseudepigraphal book of Second Enoch. There is, to say the least, writes Nibley, no gloating in heaven over the fate of the wicked world, and it is Enoch who leads the weeping. End of quote. It is surprising that so little has been done to compare modern revelation with ancient sources bearing on the weeping of Enoch. More, mere coincidence is an insufficient explanation for Joseph Smith's association of weeping with Enoch as it is a motif, motif that occurs nowhere in scripture or other sources where the prophet might have seen it, and similar accounts of weeping are not associated with comparable figures in his translations and revelations. Besides Moses 7, 41 and 49, we find two additional descriptions of Enoch's weeping. The first instance is to be found in the words of a divinely given song, recorded in Joseph Smith's Revelation Book 2, where Enoch is said to have, quote, gazed upon nature and the corruption of man, and mourned their sad fate, and wept. The second instance is in Old Testament Manuscript 2 of the Joseph Smith translation, where the revelatory account was corrected to say that it was Enoch rather than God who wept. Did God or Enoch weep in Moses 7.28? The prophet's first dictation of Moses 7.28 follows the description of Old Testament Manuscript 1, where God, it is God who weeps. The God of heaven looked upon the residue of the people, and he wept. And a subsequent revision correcting the text so it reads that Enoch wept. Enoch looked upon the residue of the people and wept. The first dictation above is the one that has been retained in the current canonical version of the book of Moses. In line with narrative considerations discussed in the previous insight, we think that it makes more sense in the context of the overall passage to understand Enoch as having deferred his weeping until Moses 7.41 after God completes his speech. Thus, for this and other reasons outlined elsewhere, we take the OT1 version of Moses 7.28, where the text states that God wept, to be the best reading of the verse, 
unless and until better arguments for the OT2 reading comes along. Within the theme of weeping, Enoch, there are several specific sub-themes that are common in both the Book of Moses and in ancient literature. Weeping in the similitude of God, weeping because divine withdrawal from the earth, weeping because of the insulting words of the wicked, weeping followed by heavenly vision. We will discuss each of these in turn. Weeping in similitude of God. In the Midrash Rabbah on Lamentations, Enoch is portrayed as weeping in likeness of God when the Israelite temple was destroyed. Quote, At that time the Holy One, blessed be he, wept and said, Woe is me, what have I done? I caused my Shekinah to dwell below on earth for the sake of Israel. But now that they have sinned, I have returned to my former habitation. At that time Metatron, who was Enoch in his glorified state, came and fell upon his face and spake before the Holy One, Blessed be he. Sovereign of the universe, let me weep, but do not thou weep. He replied to him, If thou lettest me not weep now, I will repair to a place which thou hast not permission to enter, and will weep there, as it is said, but if ye will not hear it, my soul shall weep in secret for pride. End of quote. The dialogue between God and Enoch in this passage is reminiscent of the one in Moses 7, 28-41. Quote, And it came to pass that the God of heaven looked upon the residue of the people, and he wept. And Enoch bore record of it, saying, How is it that the heavens weep and shed forth their tears as rain upon the mountains? And Enoch said unto the Lord, How is it that thou canst weep? seeing thou art holy, and from all eternity and to all eternity. Enoch, seeing God weep, was astonished at witnessing the emotional display of the holy eternal God. In the Book of Moses' account, God, in response, proceeds to show Enoch the wickedness of the people of the earth and how much they will suffer in consequence. After seeing a vision of the misery that would come upon God's children, Enoch will commiserate with God, weeping inconsolably. Speaking of prophets in general, Abraham Heschel explains that, quote, what convulsed the prophet's whole being was God. His condition was a state of suffering and sympathy with the divine pathos, end of quote. This view of prophets stand in stark contrast to the Philo of Alexandria parallel passage. Philo is commenting upon the law in Leviticus 21, 10 through 12, which prohibits the high priest from mourning for, or even approaching, the bodies of deceased parents, consistent with Greek philosophical conceptions. Philo's view of a dispassionate yet mediating high priest is not only at odds with the portrayal of Jesus as high priest presented in Hebrews 4.15, for we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but also with Heschel's perspective of mediating prophets as those who have entered into, quote, a fellowship with the feelings of God. As in the case of Enoch, a model of divine sympathy calls into question teachings regarding divine apathy. This theme of shared sorrow between God and prophet is explored at length by theologian Terence Fretheim. According to Fretheim, quote, the prophet's life was reflective of the divine life. This became increasingly apparent to Israel. God is seen to be present not only in what the prophet has to say, but in the word as embodied in the prophet's life. To hear and see the prophet was to hear and see God, a God who was suffering on behalf of the people, end of quote. To a certain extent, so close was the association between God and prophet that the prophet's very presence could serve as a sort of ongoing theophany, providing Israel with every, a very visible and tangible representation of God's concern. Fredheim argues that the prophet's sympathy with the divine pathos was not the result of contemplating the divine, but rather a result of the prophet's participation in the divine council. He writes, quote, 
The fact that the prophets are said to be a part of this council indicates something of the intimate relationship they had with God. The prophet was somehow drawn up into the very presence of God. Even more, the prophet was in some sense admitted into the history of God. The prophet becomes a party to the divine story. The heart and mind of God pass over into that of the prophet to such an extent that the prophet becomes a veritable embodiment of God." End of quote. In the case of Enoch, the prophet enters into the presence of God and witnesses the weeping of God and the heavenly host over the wickedness of humanity. As a result of this participation in the heavenly council, Enoch becomes divinely sensitized to the plight of the human race and begins to weep himself. Weeping because of the divine withdrawal from the earth. A full chorus of weeping that begins with the Messiah and expands to include the heavens and its angelic hosts is eloquently described in a Jewish mystical text called the Zohar. Quote, then the Messiah lifts up his voice and weeps, and the whole Garden of Eden quakes, and all the righteous and saints who are there break out in crying and lamentation with him. When the crying and weeping resound for the second time, the whole firmament above the garden begins to shake, and the cry echoes from 500 myriads of supernal hosts until it reaches the highest throne." End of quote. The reason for this weeping of all the workmanship of God's hands is the loss of the temple, the withdrawal of the divine presence from the earth. In Jewish tradition, this withdrawal is portrayed as having occurred in a series of poignant stages. This is vividly illustrated in Ezekiel chapters 9 through 11. Because of the priest's wickedness within the temple precincts, the glory of the God of Israel moves from its resting place within the temple compound to the threshold of the temple, where it remains for a time. Finally, after surveying the extent of the wicked priest's action within the temple, Ezekiel sees the glory of Yahweh leave the temple, continue east through the city of Jerusalem, and finally come to rest upon the Mount of Olives. This departure of the God of Israel from the great city of Jerusalem was especially significant from the perspective of the nations who surrounded Israel. According to the Hebrew Bible scholar Margaret Odell, quote, in ancient Israel, in ancient Near Eastern thought, a city could not be destroyed unless its God had abandoned it, end of quote. With the presence of God removed from the city, it now lay exposed and vulnerable to attack, a condition that was exploited by the Babylonians. The withdrawal of the divine presence from the temple is a fitting analog to the taking up of Enoch Zion from the earth, whereas in the above passages, where God withdraws his presence or his glory due to the wickedness of the people, the Book of Moses had God, has God removing the righteous city of Zion in its entirety from among the wicked nations that surround it. The differences in the two paracopes may actually have more in common than it is immediately apparent. In Jewish literature, there is a significant correspondence between Zion and the Shekinah, or Divine Presence. Zion is often personified as the Bride of God. In the, the word Shekinah is a feminine noun in Hebrew, is often associated with the female personified wisdom, and is likewise described in later Jewish writings as the Bride of God. The idea of Zion being taken up and the Shekinah being withdrawn are parallel motifs. Weeping because of the insulting words of the wicked. Theme Perkins correctly argues that, quote, speech is much more carefully controlled and monitored in a traditional hierarchical society than it is in modern democracies. We can hardly recapture the sense of horror at blasphemy that ancient society felt because for us words do not have the same power that they do in traditional societies. Words appear to have considerably lessened consequences than actions. In traditional societies, the word is a form of action, end of quote. 
Consistent with this idea, a Manichaean text describes an Enoch who weeps because of the harsh words of the wicked. Quote, <coughs> I am Enoch the righteous. My sorrow is great, and a torrent of tears streamed from my eyes because I heard the insult which the wicked ones uttered. End of quote. Elsewhere, Enoch is said to have prophesied a future judgment upon such ungodly sinners who said or are said to have uttered hard speeches against the Lord. Rabbi Eliezer gives examples of such insults. We don't need your drops of rain, neither do we need to walk in your ways. Having been told by Noah that all mankind would be destroyed by the flood if they did not repent, this, these same sons of God are said to have defiantly replied, quote, If this is the case, we will stop human reproduction and multiplying, and thus put an end to the lineage of the sons of men ourselves. End of quote. Similarly, in Moses 8.21, we find these examples of truculent boasting in the mouths of the Antediluvians. Quote, Behold, we are the sons of God. Have we not taken unto ourselves the daughters of men? And are we not eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage? And our wives bear unto us children, and the same are mighty men, which are like unto men of old, men of great renown. End of quote. An ancient exegetical tradition cited by John Reeves associated the speech of Job in 21, 7 through 15 to events transpiring during the final years of the Antediluvian era, rather than to the time of Job. Likewise, Third Enoch. In Third Enoch, these verses are directly linked not to Job, but to Enoch himself. In defiance of the Lord's entreaty to love one another and choose me their father, the wicked are depicted as saying unto God, Depart from us, for we desire not the knowledge of thy ways. What is the Almighty that we should serve him, and what profit should we have if we pray unto him? Reeves characterizes these words as, quote, a blasphemous rejection of divine governance and guidance, wherein the wicked members of the flood generation verbally reject God, end of quote. Weeping followed by heavenly vision. In the Cologne Mani Codex, Enoch's terrible, tearful sorrow is directly followed by an angelophony, quote, while the tears were still on my eyes, the prayer was yet upon my lips. I beheld approaching me even seven angels de descending from heaven. Upon seeing them, I was so moved by fear that my knees began knocking. A description of similar set of events is found in Second Enoch. In the first month, on the assigned day of the first month, I was in my house alone, weeping and grieving with mine eyes. When I had lain down on my bed, I fell asleep and two huge men appeared to me, the like of which I had never before seen on earth." End of quote. The same sequence of events, Enoch's weeping and grieving, followed by heavenly vision, can be found in modern revelation within the song of the Revelation Book 2 mentioned earlier. Quote, Enoch gazed upon nature and the corruption of man, and mourned their sad fate, and wept, and cried out with a loud voice, and heaved forth his sighs, Omnipotence, omnipotence, O may I see thee, and with his finger he touched his eyes, and he saw heaven. He gazed on eternity and sang an angelic song. End of quote. Noting that this pattern is not confined to Enoch, Reeves writes, quote, Prayer coordinated with weeping that leads to an angelophany is also a sequence prominent in other apocalyptic traditions. End of quote. Conclusions. Ancient and modern saints know that all mortal sorrow will be done away with at the end time, when God shall gather into one all things in Christ, both of which are in heaven and which are on earth. God said to Noah that in that day, quote, My posterity shall embrace the truth and look upward. Then shall Zion look downward, and all the heavens shall shake with gladness, and the earth shall tremble with joy. 
describing the human dimension of the great at one of the heavenly and earthly Zion, when tears of joy shall replace tears of mourning, is the account of Enoch himself, where we read, quote, Then shalt thou and all thy city meet them there, and we shall receive them into our bosom, and they shall see us, and we will fall upon their necks, and they shall fall upon our necks, and we will kiss each other. 